Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta, and this week we're going to talk about the paper that came out this week in Nature Human Behavior. This was work done by Dr. Philip Fernbach and his group talking about how the knowledge of a topic in science would sync with the attitude of a topic and the confidence of discussing the topic with their actual knowledge. And it was a really uh, important paper because it described for scientists who've been following the fields of biotechnology, of gene therapy, uh, what, what we've actually observed. And here we're able to formalize that. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Fernbach. It's a pleasure to be with you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you could jump on so fast. This is really great. Yeah, it's been a bit of, it's been a bit of a wild week, but um, I was excited to make time for your audience because uh, I uh, I'm a I'm a cognitive scientist, so I don't get to talk to biotechnologists very often. So it's uh, it's fun to me fun for me to um, interact with you. Now, I should have mentioned you're in the lead school of business, and that's at University of Colorado. And good schools of business hire good people who work in cognitive studies or in social psychology, um, organizational behavior. It's all based on psychology, right? That's right. Um, I'm, bit, I'm a bit of an odd duck in the, uh, in the area of consumer behavior and marketing because I'm a cognitive scientist. Um, and most of the psychologists in this field are come from more of a social cognition, social psychology kind of background. So I'm a bit of an odd duck. Um, but uh, the field is starting to move in that direction a little bit. And uh, um, I have a lot of um, sort of uh, unique knowledge to provide for the field. So, so it works out really well. It works out well for business and science needs more of it. And that's where we really screwed up as scientists and trying to win hearts and minds strictly by beating people to death with facts and evidence. And I know it, it is important to have facts and evidence. And certainly when we're preaching to the choir, it's critical. But in trying to change the minds of people who aren't sure who to trust or really those who are even recalcitrant to new technologies, We've made this con this constant mistake of we'll just give them more data and that'll make them feel better. And so, why is that sometimes maybe not the best approach? Well, I think there's there's um, a lot of things going on when you try to change people's minds. It's it's really difficult, as you point out. Um, and I know in the science communication literature, there's been a movement sort of away from the deficit model way of thinking about things that merely providing more information to people. Um, is going to um, change their opinions and more um, thinking about some of the other kind of contextual factors that play a role like um, people's culture, the, um, the, uh, the group that they affiliate with, the emotionality they have towards the issue and all those sort of things. Um, I think what's um, a little bit unique about what we're doing in this paper is looking at this additional factor, which uh, is about knowledge. It's about um, the disconnect between how much people know and how much they think they know. 
Um, and what we're finding in this paper is that the extreme opponents of genetically modified foods um, had the least knowledge, um, but they think they understand the issue the best. So that, that shows an additional factor in terms of why that deficit model approach might not be so successful. Um, because the people that need the education um, are uh, uh, the ones who are probably least open to hearing what you have to say because they already feel like they understand the issue. Well, the, the ones who need the education consider themselves the educators. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's the problem. We've been up against this for a long time. And that's really that, you know, the experts who really do know this stuff are considered to be, um, you know, paid off agents of big agriculture. And the people who really don't know what they're talking about, who um, ha- are the ones who feel, well, I have all the facts. The website told me so. And it's been kind of a real insurmountable problem for us is that how do you shift, especially when that's much more emotional and much more glamorous, uh, how do we shift it? And I think that this paper really serves an important role in this because it's the first place anybody has stepped out and said, hey, look, this is happening. And maybe it can give a little bit of self-assessment. But what was the hypothesis that you originally went out to test when you had the idea of conceiving this study? Yeah, well, I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. So um, uh, Steve Sloman and I wrote a book in 2017. It's called The Knowledge Illusion. And the book is really about how, um, as human beings, we have this very natural tendency to overestimate the way how much we understand the world. Um, this was based on research that was originally done by a guy named Frank Kyle and his colleagues at Yale um, in the 1990s, looking at things like how well people thought they understood how toilets work or can openers, or other kinds of things like that. Um, later on, we applied this um, to other things like more complex social policies, like political issues and things like that. I mean, this is a very basic feature of the human mind, is that um, our first, uh, our first um, instinct about the world is that it's simpler than it actually is, and that we understand things in more depth than we think that we do. Um, one of the areas that I thought that this was super fascinating and important was in the, in the domain of science literacy um, and, um, uh, and, and uh, disagreements about contentious scientific topics, especially areas where there's a scientific consensus. And yet you have large swaths of the population who have counter scientific consensus views. Um, we wrote a whole chapter on it in the book. Um, and reviewed a lot of the literature and, you know, the question you asked me uh, before about why is it so hard to, to, uh, uh, to influence these debates and so on. We, we get into that, um, in detail in the chapter. Um, but we hadn't done so much of the research yet, um, in that area. So we, um, uh, we actually uh, received a grant to study something called intellectual humility in public discourse. And the idea there is to improve discourse around divisive issues. Um, by getting people to realize that the reality is more complex than they think it is. And, um, and I, I particularly got really interested in doing work on, uh, on, on scientific topics. And GMOs is probably my favorite, um, partially because I live in Boulder, Colorado, which is sort of the mecca of anti-GMO sentiment. Um, despite the fact that people here tend to be really smart and well-educated and all that kind of stuff. So I, I find it to be this, this really interesting um, uh, paradox and that's sort of how we came to this uh, idea. And, and we did start um, thinking that we might find patterns like this because we know from work on the psychology of extremism and extreme beliefs that extreme beliefs sometimes are based on this overestimation of knowledge. 
Um, so we started off thinking we might find this kind of kind of stuff, even though it does seem kind of crazy. Yeah, I know that um, the Dunning-Kruger paper always comes up, or Kruger-Dunning, yeah. as it actually is. And it seems hard to believe to me, and I, I taught about this on uh, Tuesday of last week. I taught about um, about self-deception and cognitive bias, and, uh, and I'm a scientist. You know, I'm talking about psychology things. We talked about Dunning-Kruger, yeah. and... Um, I, and I couldn't believe that that paper was like 1998 or 99, that how comes it took so long for people to realize that, uh, that there's this weird confidence that it goes along with not actually knowing anything? Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, psychology is very hard because we're using our own brains to try to study our own brains. And uh, we have a lot of blind spots. And so sometimes it's very hard to see things that are right in front of our faces. You know, and that's actually part and parcel of the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Um, if you don't have knowledge in a domain, it's sort of hard to evaluate how much knowledge you have in that domain. If you are um, poor at a task, you don't have the ability to evaluate how good you are at the task. I mean, that's what the Dunning-Kruger effect is all about. And I think that um, psych- psychological research has it's a bit of the same uh, characteristic, which is that, you know, a lot of the time we're guided by our intuitions in terms of what kind of questions we ask and what we study. Um, and so we tend to have a lot of blind spots. And I think that is why the Dunning-Kruger um, paper has had such a big influence is because people, um, when they saw it, they didn't say, oh, that's crazy. They said, wow, that seems right to me. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that a lot of, a lot of my research and the work that Steve and I have done, Steve Sloman and I have done and that we talk about in the book has the same character. Um, people don't look at it and say, I don't believe that or that's crazy. They look at it and they say, wow, that's, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. And I see a lot of that in my own behavior or in the behavior of my uncle at Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it is. Right. Well, and, but I also see like the inverse Dunning-Kruger in my own behavior because yeah. and maybe it's because I'm a scientist who's been trained in, in scientists and maybe has that kind of intellectual humility that I yeah. walk around all day saying, I don't have a freaking clue. And it yeah. only gets it only gets worse the more I learn and the more I'm in education that I'm very comfortable admitting I know absolutely nothing and <laughs> and um and you know even in my area of expertise saying there's a lot more that I need to know and I'm probably underthinking this and is that kind of the opposite trend that maybe you see among academics or others? You know, some academics, right? I'm sure you have colleagues that uh, don't have that uh, <laughs> that tendency, right? Um, yeah, but but uh, I, I think you're right. Um, uh, people who educate, I think, um, tend to see this a lot more because when you're forced into teaching about something, you, it, it uncovers the gaps in your understanding pretty quickly. Um, and you know, you see, you see, I think you see that recognition a lot less in places like the business world because um, in the business world, you have to make decisions and you have to be decisive, and all of that stuff um, kind of cuts against. Uh, having, you know, rational amounts of uncertainty about the world and so on. Um, so I do think you're right that academics who are constantly faced with realizing how complex real issues are um, and how little of it that, that we actually understand and know as individuals, we're constantly faced with that. So I think that over time we do learn that a little bit. Um, you know, working on this, on this research in the book, I've certainly changed a lot in that respect. Um, in terms of um, getting in the habit of checking my understanding a lot more um, habitually. But um, I still fall into the trap all the time. I mean, it's just a very 
it's, it's a very alluring illusion about, about the way we go through the world. I mean, we always just get that sort of aha moment long before we've actually analyzed any issue in detail. Well, the paper's been being discussed in a lot of different places, whether it's online or just in small groups. And could you go back and give us a little bit of a recap as to precisely how the study was designed and some of the ways that you performed the test in order to get the, uh, well, in order to get the data that you then analyzed? Sure. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's kind of fun about this paper is that the title of the paper basically tells, tells you most of what you need to know about it, about the results. It's a really straightforward result. It's a correlational study. So it's a survey study. It's not a manipulation like an experiment. Um, it's a survey data. And there's basically three sources of, uh, of data that we look at. One is attitudes. Um, and uh, we measure how opposed people are to GMOs. GMO food. I'm talking just about the first and second studies right now. We, we measure how opposed people are to GM foods um, and how much concern they have about them. That measure is sort of re, uh, reverse coded um, so that less concern is sort of more counter scientific consensus. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. More concern is, um, is counter scientific consensus and more opposition is counter scientific consensus. Sorry, I, I misspoke there. Um, and, and so we, we get this measure of, of extremity of opposition to the consensus on GM foods. Then we, um, uh, ask people how much they think they know about, about, um, about GM foods. And we do that using a method that's adapted from that, um, uh, research I was talking about before from the cognitive science literature, asking people how much they feel they know about things. Um, and then we uh, do a, a science literacy test. So we use a battery of sort of common science literacy questions. Um, and we also have a subset of questions about genetics. So can we, we can look specifically at genetics as well, genetics knowledge. And those are the three main um, uh, things we look at in the study. What we find is that as extremity of opposition increases, science literacy goes down and genetic literacy, literacy goes down. But that self-assessed understanding, how much do people think they know about the technology, that goes up dramatically. And so the result is that there's this very big disconnect between how much people think they know and how much they actually know um, as they become more opposed to the consensus. Um, there's a, a very interesting ancillary analysis, which um, is very related to the Dunning-Kruger stuff we were just talking about. And what we do in that analysis is we look at the relationship between subjective and objective understanding or self-assessed and objective knowledge. And if, if a person is well calibrated, um, then those things should be highly correlated. So if I say I don't know very much, I, I should do poorly on the science literacy test. And if I say I know a lot, I should do well on the science literacy test. And indeed, we find that correlation if you are consistent with the scientific consensus or if you're more moderate. But as you become more extreme, that relationship degrades and eventually flips and so for the extreme opponents, you actually find a reversal where the people who know less think they know more and vice versa. So those are the main results. Wow. Um, well, it's really amazing because it fits exactly with what we have observed in the science communication that I can't tell you how many times I've walked into, and I've always been invited to like the anti-GMO stuff because I can respectfully carry on a conversation with people I disagree with. Right. But um, one night um, I, I was at a, a film 
uh, review. And I was on the panel with the uh, Crystal Healer and the, uh, you know, <laughs> a couple of other people right. and yeah. the guy from, uh, you know, Occupy Monsanto. Yeah. And, uh, and afterwards I took a bunch of people out for beer because they wanted to know more. And the Occupy Monsanto guy came along and he didn't have answers to anything, but he yeah. was the, the absolute, you know, he, uh, it, they're just evil. So that's all you need to know. Yeah. Yet he considered himself to be much more of an expert than I was. And it was such an extreme case. And it's exactly what your paper shows. Yeah, you know, I think one thing to bear in mind for your listeners is um, there's a, a, a strong tendency, I think, to have, to vilify a person like that. And um, I think it's important to sort of take a step back and consider the possibility, at least, that this person may actually be kind of fooling themselves rather than having bad intentions, right? They might actually have good intentions. They want to protect their kids from harmful ingredients and so on. I um, mean, a lot of the time we just have these really intense blind spots where we think we're actually engaging with the evidence in a fairly reasonable way, um, but we're not doing so um, very, very effectively. So this person probably thinks that they um, know a lot about this issue, right? And they think that they've engaged with the evidence in a serious way. But as you said, what they're really doing is engaging in a very um, biased assimilation of the evidence. So um, I actually have noticed this myself because I'm trying to stay away from the message boards um, and seeing the reaction to the paper, but I've seen a couple critiques of, 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 of myself and the paper and so on. And um, people are just not taking, people who want to critique it that I've seen are not taking the evidence very seriously. Um, they're coming up with these, with these pretty easily falsifiable accusations about me being in league with Monsanto or criticizing the methodology on grounds that, that actually don't bear on the results. So saying things like, I, I don't trust this paper because they say that GMOs are safe and I don't think they're safe. But if you, if you look at the paper, it's actually our results are not contingent on the safety of GM foods. I'm not a geneticist. I'm not a biologist. So actually I, I'm just sort of relying on what I've read, um, uh, based on, on, um, uh, you know, uh, scientific associations I trust and so on. But you don't have to believe in the safety of GM foods to, to look at the results of the study and say, oh, that's an interesting pattern. So, so I know exactly where you're coming from, but I, but I do think it's important to, to realize that a lot of the people expressing these views don't have evil intentions. Um, some do, uh, for sure. There are people who, with an agenda, um, but, but many, many people uh, actually don't have evil intentions. And so it's important to, I, I think, to take a step back and think about sort of the psychology and how interesting it is, and then try to think about ways that we might influence it as opposed to vilifying these people, calling them stupid, and that kind of stuff, because that's certainly not going to be effective. And I also think it's not quite right. No, you're exactly right. And my job as a professor is to help to find people who want to know more information, who who feel that they need to fill the deficit and be their deficit filler. And if I, I and I always ask myself, do they are they in, and you know, the, the, the course way of saying it is stupid or liar. Right. But, it, but the, the way what we're actually saying there is, are they just ignorant to the actual evidence and meaning, and that's in a good way, they just don't have the actual evidence or are they willfully misinterpreting it on purpose for ideological gain? Exactly. And, yeah. And so if you got to look at that carefully and I always give people the benefit of the doubt, 
Yeah, I think that's really important. And I would say that um, that's great. And I would say that most people do not give others the benefit of the doubt on that. Um, it's just very unnatural too. I mean, when we see people that hold positions that are counter to what we believe, um, it's very natural to go to one of those two places, as you said, stupid or liar, right? Stupid or evil intentioned. Right. And, um, you know, when you see an issue like GM foods, where literally 90% of our sample has some concerns, um, and, you know, something like half have pretty darn strong concerns, you know, I think it's just kind of lazy to, 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 um, to, uh, to just assume that like, you know, half the population is a bunch of idiots or that they have evil intentions. I, I always think that the, that the truth of the psychology is, is much more interesting. And so that sort of simplistic take just doesn't do it justice. Well, most of the time, these are very passionate people who are woefully misinformed. Exactly. And, and they're misinformed by very effective misinformers. So that it, it does really uh, beg for us who are in the position to try to be influencers to have that um, compassion for the fact that they just are, you know, almost, uh, and, and this is how I feel about most of them. I don't want to argue with them. I don't want to debate them. I want to hug them. And especially the people who are most um, vociferous and the people who've really gone after me over the years, yeah. I have this really freaky, um, uh, almost like a compassion and almost like pity for them that I really want to uh, do what I can to help them understand. And the day they have their awakening, be first in line to give them a handshake and say, thank you for you know trying to understand. But uh, yeah. it, it's, but for those of us who deal with this on a day in and day out basis, it, 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 it's changed a lot, but there are people who I genuinely do believe feel that they have financial interests in this and yep. that they are willfully making mistakes to influence people and to skew the conversation. I'm sure there is some of that for sure. Absolutely. Um, in any sort of debate where there's big stakes, there's going to be um, those, those kinds of people who try to influence the debate in that way. Um, I was one thing you said um, uh, resonated with me. So I want to, I want to, um, uh, connect on it a little more, which is the idea of misinformation. So I have actually noticed this too, that if, that if a few people have been sort of criticizing the paper on the grounds of, uh, we talk about ignorance and, and the fact that these people don't know very much. And there, uh, there's people have sort of rightly pointed out that there's, um, uh, that there's another side to the story, which is about misinformation. So it's not that they don't know anything, um, but they, what they know is incorrect. And I think that that is um, a really interesting angle on this as well. Now, in this study, we don't provide direct evidence for that because this study is really more about looking at actual science literacy and these answers to the objective knowledge questions. Um, but we are doing other research looking at the kind of misinformation that people have or what are the beliefs that people have that lead them to have this opposition to, um, to genetically modified foods. And so I think it's a, a really fascinating topic as well, the, the way that sort of ignorance versus um, misinformation plays out. But see, the beauty of this, and I have this written down on my paper here to, to tell you about this or ask you your opinion on this, is that you can almost do that study based upon the comment sections in <laughs> the, because when you look at, at the places your paper has been discussed, people swarm in and say, well, no, this isn't true. It's just sponsored by Monsanto, which yeah. it's not. But they, but there's that level of just automatic throwaway kind of uh, uh, response to information. 
The other one is where you see people say, well, it's been shown that glyphosate kills bees and Roundup is causing cancer and they're, they're, they have the misinformation. And so you could almost go to those comments in a comment section to this paper and say, here's somebody who has a negative feeling about the paper and yeah. they are clearly misinformed. And you, and you would see them, I mean, the correlation and the irony it just abounds. So um, there's a, there's an even deeper sense, I think, in which in which the information, the misinformation side of this plays out um, more so than them, you know, claiming that I'm working for Monsanto or whatever other kind of ridiculous ideas. Um, and it's this idea that the way that we make sense of the world often is by having some model, some mental model of the world and the way things work. We talk at length about this in, in our book, The Knowledge Illusion. Um and um, the idea is that a lot of the times these models are really s- subtle. We don't even, we're not even aware of, of them because they are so subtle. They are so like deeply embedded in, in the way we um, have feelings about the world. And typically we learn them. Uh, we learn a model for a new domain by sort of generalizing from something we do understand. So just to give you an example, when you eat something, you consume something, it's very natural to think about um, that thing being able to transmit properties or transmit something to you, right? Because that's just a very natural kind of physical relationship that we see in the world. And so when people um, uh, uh, don't understand how genetic modification actually works, it's very easy for them to have false beliefs that are based on sort of an incorrect model of how it works. So they might think they can be contaminated in some way by, some way by consuming this. Maybe their own DNA can be contaminated by the, by the, by the, the, um, the food that they're eating and so on. Um, so um, this is one of the hypotheses that we're working on, which is the idea that people have this sort of incorrect model of, of the way that the science actually works. And, and, and a lot of the misconceptions that they have actually breed their concerns. They breed the fears that they have. And if you, th- if you have these kind of misconceptions, GMO, GM food is, can be really scary. Right. So um, that's one of the directions that we're going is, is to try to figure out if we can correct those kind of deep mechanistic beliefs that people have, those mechanistic misconceptions that people have about genetically modified foods to sort of allay their fears and their concerns. So that's w- one thing we're thinking about. But that kind of flies in the face of the whole deficit model part, I mean, doesn't it? And it says that oh, we right. really we, we need to be able to educate ourselves out of this. And it really yeah. puts us in the, that weird cyclical conundrum as communicators and educators, because here we, we, I guess it depends on who we're trying to influence. And maybe that's the, 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 the fork in the road here. That if we're trying to talk to people who don't have a clue, who are at yeah. least will admit they're unsure and they're not comfortable with it, maybe that's the place where we're not filling a deficit. But maybe the folks who just desperately are making, uh, who, who are producing incorrect, making heartfelt, passionate decisions based on bad information. Maybe those are the folks we need to be targeting with better information. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that, um, so so I didn't understand. Um, so you, in what sense do you think that, that what I was saying is, is um, sort of counter to the deficit model idea? Oh no, I think it's I think it's completely consistent with the deficit I see, I model. See. Um it's yeah. it's but the the recent trend in at least I see, the I see folks 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that, that, yeah, that's what I would say is that, um, I, I actually, I, we haven't really done the research yet. We're just in the beginning stages of it, but I, I'm not so quick to dismiss the basic idea of the deficit model. Um, what I think is that you need more targeted and psychologically motivated types of education. So it's not going to be effective to come along to someone who's this strong, passionate um, uh, advocate for GM opposition and say to them, hey, you're wrong. The scientific consensus says that you're wrong. And, you know, this is why. And, and, and GM food is great and so on. Um, I think that what you need to do is you need to understand what the source of their opposition is what the source of the misconception is and target that more directly. And the point I was making is that it turns out that a large percentage of people in our studies um, have fears that are um, mechanistically based. That is, they have bodily harm concerns. They think they're going to be sickened by these things, or they think that they're going to be poisoned or that they're going to get cancer and so on. And if you can somehow teach those people that, that those kind of concerns just aren't possible given a proper understanding of the science and understanding of the mechanism, I think that that might have some efficacy in terms of getting them to open their mind a little bit. Um, one analog to this is um, work that's being done by Michael Ranney uh, on climate change. And what he does is he, uh, he does exactly this. He tries to teach people about how the mechanism of global warming actually works. And it turns out that literally like zero lay people have this knowledge. So he went out to a public park and asked 300 people to tell him how climate change works um, or how the um, the greenhouse effect works. Um, and, and, and it was, it was like zero people could, could um, articulate it. And I think the same is true for, for genetic engineering and gene science. Um, I think almost nobody really understands it. Uh, who's a lay person. Um, and so that just is a breeding ground for a lot of, you know, misconceptions about the technology because it is kind of a counterintuitive sort of technology. It's not something that we can observe with our own two eyes or easily understand by generalizing from other parts of our lives and so on. Um, so, so that's kind of the direction we're trying to come at it from. Yeah, and that makes sense. It's got that, um, as you know, as a cognitive psychologist, it's touching the area of disgust which is a very strong, you know, and unnatural, which is a very strong uh, a, a repulsion effect for people. You know, I, I'm, I'm really happy you said that because um, in our work, we're actually distinguishing between that kind of a disgust, unnatural reaction from a kind of fear-based reaction that's based on a misunderstanding of the science. So one of my colleagues, um, uh, Sydney Scott, who is third author on the paper, uh, that we've been talking about. She's actually been doing a lot of the work on this uh, idea of disgust. Um, and we do find a subset of people who have those kind of concerns as well. I think of them as being um, uh, lumped in with a moral opposition and sometimes a religious opposition, which is this feels icky because it's just wrong. It's playing with nature. It's messing with, um, with, with, with nature in a way that we shouldn't be uh, messing with it. And I actually think that um, the psychology there is a little bit different because if you ex you think about um, uh, those types of people, um, they might be less concerned about the consequences, the outcomes. They might not be so worried that this is going to harm me and so on, but they might feel just more morally opposed regardless of the consequences. And I actually think different kind of interventions might be necessary if that is the source of opposition. 
Um, and we've been testing some things like trying to make uh, genetic engineering seem more natural via analogy to selective breeding and other kinds of um, uh, technologies that are that are more traditional that people might be more comfortable with. That's very true. And as we go into the age of gene editing, where we're doing these minor, minor tweaks, which essentially emulate traditional breeding, it's going to be really important about how we message this and how we think about these different segments of population in our messaging and can't miss one because yep. we'll be back where we are with genetic engineering, you know, the old school GMO type stuff. When you look at the data from the paper, it wasn't just about uh, genetic engineering or GMO science. You were talking about gene therapy or talking about climate. How did those tease apart into separate types of perceptions from the, uh, from the uh, respondent side? Yeah, that, that's another important result that I'm glad we got back to. Um, so study one and study two just looked at um, uh, GMOs, GMO food. Um, and uh, we also looked at gene therapy. Uh, as a medical application of, um, of genetic engineering, because previous research has shown that people are a little bit more accepting of, of that application. And, um, and therefore we were curious whether we get the same pattern. We, we found exactly the same pattern for, um, gene therapy. Um, although, uh, acceptance levels were higher as, as people have found previously. Um, but we also looked at climate change beliefs and there we found a very different pattern. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's pretty interesting to speculate about what is different between the, the climate change issue and, uh, and the, and the genetic engineering issue. And, um, our hypothesis, which is based on some analysis that we did, although we don't really have direct evidence yet, is that it has to do with how polarized the issue is. Um, uh, uh, GMOs are not polarized. So, uh, liberals and conservatives equally kind of hate GMOs at least in the United States. It's a little bit different in Europe, but in the United States, that's the case. Climate change is very different. Um, liberals tend to be very accepting of the scientific consensus on climate change. Conservatives are quite opposed to that consensus. And when we look at our data, what we find is that um, if you look at liberals on that climate change issue, they look a lot like our GMO folks. That is um, extremity, uh, as they become more opposed to that consensus, they know less and think they know more. But uh, conservatives show a very different pattern um, where there's actually a flip, although in our data not statistically significant. Um, there does seem to be a bit of a flip where actually um, the most knowledgeable conservatives um, are often the ones that have the most opposition to the scientific consensus uh, on climate change. Um, and so what it seems like is happening is that when an issue is that polarized, people are sort of just following their ideological community rather than basing what they know on their, on how much, uh, I'm sorry, basing their position on, on how yeah, much. Yeah, that they makes know. sense. I mean, you're, they're actually basing yep. their decision based upon maybe cherry picked evidence that they can come up and justify because it confirms their bias. Is that kind of, am I reading that right? Yeah, there, there's arguments in this, in the, in the literature. Um, there, there's a guy named Dan Kahan who you might be familiar with. I think we might have, um, his name might have come up, but he's part of this big project called the Cultural Cognition Project. Um, and they've been doing re research arguing for, um, sort of the, you know, a, a counterpoint to the deficit model, which is this idea that our positions really come from our ideological community. 
And one uh, corollary to what they've been arguing is that sometimes um, engaging in, in the sort of motivated reasoning that, that is required in order to convince yourself of a counter-scientific consensus position requires a certain amount of knowledge. Like you have to know something to be able to sort of engage with the debate and sort of convince yourself that you're right about that um, counter-scientific consensus view. And there does seem to be some of that going on in the climate change debate um, uh, based on work that Kahan and others have done. And I think that our data also provides some weak support for that, um, for that idea. Um, so that shows that even be, beyond what we're showing in our, in our GM effects, there's this additional com- complication and difficulty um, for science communicators that has to do with sort of fighting through this ideological commitment that people have to a position. So you're in Boulder, Colorado. And since this came out, have you been, uh, you know, getting mean looks at Whole Foods? And <laughs> did, you, did your house get TP'd or anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question. It's one reason why it's so fun to work on this stuff here. Um, th- there was an article in our local paper, The Daily Camera, and someone, uh, I, I ran into the hallway, said, hey, did you look at the comments on The Daily Camera? And started <laughs> and, um, and so I've avoided looking there. But I, but I have to say that um, it's been a really fun experience with how much buzz this paper has gotten. I went to the doctor for a physical the other day, and, uh, and she had uh, seen the paper on Twitter. And she had read the paper and she was, she was loving it. She told me that this is exactly, um, ex- describes her patients. And I got to tell her that I'm doing other work on a medical uh, decision making where we find that uh, people go into their doctor after searching the internet and think that they're geniuses. And she, she just loved that. So, um, you know, the truth is that the, uh, kind of people I hang around with, um, you do get, uh, both sides of it. You know, I hang out around with scientists who are very pro-science and GM, pro-GMO, and then I hang out with all sorts of people who are, uh, you know, your classic Boulderites, who are highly educated and intelligent people who, um, who uh, you know, uh, do have some of these th- concerns about things like vaccination or uh, this. By the way, vaccination and GMOs do not lean liberal. Um, they lean, uh, they, they do not lean one direction or the other, but you do get a healthy number of liberals who, who, uh, who sort of have anti-vaccination ideas or anti-GMO kind of ideas. So it's fun to spend time with those people and hear what they have to say. Um, it's not so fun, I have to say, to be, uh, to be unfairly criticized, which, which, uh, which is very uh, par for the course, I think, when you, uh, put in, uh, put an idea out there that's very, um, threatening to people uh, who are on the other side of the debate. Uh, that part of it isn't so fun, but it's certainly something that I understand. And uh, I'd like to, to try to hopefully um, avoid the more noxious corners of the internet. And then when people want to have a reasoned uh, debate on the issues, like I'm very, very happy to do that. Uh, we put all our data out there for people to analyze and look at all of our methods and materials. Um, we want the debate. Um, it's really important. We think that these issues are so important. So uh, we welcome debate. We welcome reasoned and thoughtful critique. Um, and we're, we're very much looking forward to engaging more with this stuff. Okay, but make sure that you're really up to speed on the FOIA rules at your institution because they're going to be asking for your emails and everything else before long. And it's um, yeah. it, it's the price that we pay for stepping out and telling the truth. And, you know, that's what it is. But, you know, it could be worse. So if people wanted to learn more about you or the project, where could they get more information? Uh, check out my website, philipfernback.com. Um, you can find a link to the paper on there, uh, as well as more information about other kinds of research I'm up to and all, 
all sorts of other good stuff. All right, really good. So Dr. Philip Fernbeck, uh, Assistant Professor at Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado in beautiful Boulder, uh, Colorado, where Mork from Mork was from. Um, you know that reference? <laughs> uh, Mork and Mindy, yeah. Okay, absolutely. yeah. I actually took a picture in front of his house last time I was in Boulder. Was, nice. Yeah, nice. so it was kind of weird. Well, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> uh, keep us posted on future developments because this kind of stuff helps everybody who's trying to engage the public do it more effectively. So thank you so much for joining me today. It was a real pleasure to talk with you, Kevin. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes. You know the drill. Uh, tell a friend. Our uh, numbers are growing and things are going extremely well. And we've had a lot of great guests. And I think that we got some good momentum. Um, read this paper. Discuss it with family and friends. Talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.